Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 6th of November. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler and joining me from the National Cancer Research Institute's conference in Liverpool is Kat Arney. Hello, and this week we're catching up with the latest in cancer research, finding out how cell signalling can control cancers and why the ways in which a cell repairs its DNA could offer targets to treat tumours. Plus, we'll explore the latest developments in cancer imaging, including new techniques that allow us to track chemical reactions happening inside the the body. So if you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, just get on that Twitter and tweet us. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page, thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or you can drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with Kat Arney. And Kat is at the National Cancer Research Institute's annual conference. So Kat, what should we expect to see over the coming days? Well, this is the, the National UK Cancer Conference. It's really, really big and there's loads of stuff. There's loads of doctors, nurses, scientists, cancer patients, all sorts of people involved in research are coming here today and over the next couple of days to talk about the latest developments, find out what's going on, set up collaborations. And it's the 10th anniversary this year of the NCRI, the National Cancer Research Institute, and that's the umbrella organisation for all the cancer funders in the UK. So it's shaping up to be a really, really big and impressive conference. Um, Already we've had some stories coming out of the conference. There's been some news about increasing rates of cervical cancer among young women. This is women in their 20s. Now we have a very good screening programme for cervical cancer. It stops a lot of deaths by detecting dodgy cells in the cervix before they actually become cancer. And uh, in Initially, the screening programme did cause a drop in cancer rates in young women, but the rates are on the rise again. Now, the majority of cases of cervical cancer are caused by HPV, that's the human papillomavirus, and this is usually a sexually transmitted infection. So um, scientists maybe think that a lack of safe sex among young women might be the cause. So uh, be safe out there, ladies, and help to reduce your cancer risk. Now, also, there's a strong focus here at the conference on personalised medicine, and we'll be talking a lot more about that later in the show. And this is about testing tumours for specific faulty genes or molecules and finding out which drugs are most likely to be effective. This is really moving towards treating cancer as a molecular disease, not as a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. So instead of saying, well, you have this type of cancer, you have bowel cancer or you have breast cancer, testing someone's tumour and saying, oh, you have this, this and this faulty gene, so you need 
this, this and this drug. And we'll be talking later in the show to Professor Chris Marshall, who's done a lot of work over, over the past 30 years into cell signalling and trying to understand how these signals go wrong and how we might target them to treat cancer. And he's just done an excellent talk this afternoon all about that. Um, we've also got a very interesting talk going on about chemo prevention from John Potter. This is the idea of preventing cancer using drugs. Now, we've been very successful with preventing things like heart disease using statins, but much less successful with cancer. And there's some evidence that uh, a breast cancer drug called tamoxifen and now new drugs called um, aromatase inhibitors might help to prevent breast cancer in women at high risk. But there haven't been many other successes like this. So he thinks you know, why aren't we being successful and do we need to completely rethink our ideas about how to prevent cancer? So it's looking like it's going to be a week packed with talks, posters, networking events, and there's even art exhibitions exploring issues around cancer and how it affects people. So it's uh, shaping up to be a fantastic few days. And me and my team from Cancer Research UK are going to be covering all the top stories on our blog. That's scienceblog.cancerresearchuk.org. So uh, go and check it out to get all the breaking news. And in some ways, it feels like we're on the cusp of a, a, a sea change in attitudes towards cancer because of personalised medicine, because of gene therapies. It really does seem like we're in a very exciting time. It's a really, really exciting time. I mean, when you look at when the human genome was sequenced just a decade ago, it cost so much money, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds, and it took ages. And now we can sequence three cancer genomes in a week for a cost of you know $1,000, uh, more or less. So we can actually really start to analyse people's tumours, figure out what's gone wrong and, and work on the right drugs to treat them. So there's a lot of optimism in the field now of cancer researchers and cancer doctors. Thanks, Kat. Deletion of two regulatory genes allows damaged neurons to grow back in a sustained way. This could now point the way to new drug targets that encourage nerve regrowth. One of the major problems with repairing or regrowing damaged cells from the central nervous system is the relatively huge distances the cells need to extend in order to meet their target. There are basically two stages of neuron growth in development. There's de novo or new outgrowth and connection in the developing embryo and that's followed by a long period of what's called networked growth. This is where the axons, the long slender projections that carry the electrical signal from one neuron to the next, extend all while maintaining their connection at either end. As the animal grows, this second stage can result in axons being far longer than anything created by the novel growth that first happened in the embryo. If adult central nervous system neurons are damaged, however, the de novo method kicks in to attempt to repair. This can be slow and unreliable, and it doesn't really offer the sustained repair and regrowth required to regain pre-injury performance. Writing in the journal Nature, Chi Yang He from the Children's Hospital in Brighton and colleagues report that deleting or suppressing two regulatory genes called P10 and SOX3 enabled nerve cells called adult retinal ganglion cells from the optic nerve of mice to sustainably regenerate a damaged axon. P10, or phosphatase and tensin homologue, acts as a tumour suppressor. It regulates cell growth and replication, while SOX3, or suppressor of cytokine signalling 3, regulates cell signalling. If you remove either gene on its own, you do see a little improvement in neuron regeneration, but deleting both genes together has a remarkable effect, a more than tenfold increase in the number of regenerating cells.
So researchers then looked at the pathways downstream of these genes and they identified a number of factors that were only activated in damaged nerves if these two genes were deleted. That suggests that P10 and SOX3 are suppressing growth factors and pathways that promote axon growth. And although each of these genes acts on different pathways, there is obviously some synergy between them. Understanding these factors could now provide a target for treatments that would encourage the rapid and healthy regrowth of damaged nerves and achieve full functional recovery. Now, most cell types in our body are being constantly replenished, but we do still get old. A subpopulation of cells are said to undergo senescence. That's where chemical controls kick in and stop them from dividing to produce new cells. When we're young, these are then cleared out by the immune system, but as we get older, they start to build up in our tissues. Researchers at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester suggest that these cells may play a very important role in diseases of old age, as Mira Senthalingam found out when she spoke to Jan van Dersen. So we basically set out to test whether senescent cells, which are really cells that accumulate in some mammalian organisms over time, were suspect of contributing to age-related disease. So we wanted to test whether that was really the case. All we did essentially was design an animal model in which we could clear these so-called senescent cells. We had two approaches. One approach was to do it lifelong, start at an early age and keep doing it for the rest of the life of the animal. And then the other way was to first Uh, have the animal age so that the age-related disabilities and disorders would be present and then clear the cells and see uh, whether there would be any beneficial effect of their clearance. And whereabouts are these cells actually found? Are they throughout the body? Yeah, they're found in most tissues and organs. They are really uh, thought of as uh, cells that are accumulating as a result of an anti-cancer defense mechanism. So if a cell becomes damaged to a degree that it is uh, likely to develop into a tumor cell, um, this process of cell senescence is activated. And basically what it is, it makes these cells stop proliferating as a way to prevent the formation of tumors. The side effect is that you start accumulating these cells um, in tissues and organs, and they're not just innocent bystanders at that point, because this process of senescence uh, really changes the profile of proteins that these cells uh, produce. They start producing and secreting uh, inflammatory cytokines, uh, growth factors, proteases that chew up parts of the surrounding cells. So basically, the secretory components of senescent cells make the life of the neighboring cells much more difficult. So although the senescent cells are relatively small in numbers, maybe a couple percentage of the uh, total number of cells in a tissue or organ, but their um, effects, negative effects, are quite widespread. And how did you set about removing these cells? We took advantage of the knowledge that tumor suppressor gene P16 is really expressed in most of these uh, senescent cells. It actually is thought to play a role in the conversion of a normal cell to a senescent cell. So we use that to make an artificial gene, kind of a suicide gene, 
driven by that same P16 promoter. So whenever P16 expressed, we would also express this suicide gene. But the uh, suicide gene is present, but it needs to still be activated by a drug. So senescent cells that express the suicide gene would still not die until we would expose the cells to a synthetic drug. And what were your key findings then with regard to the presence of these cells and their effect on particular age-related disorders? And which disorders did you see an effect with? We needed to test this experimental system, and we did that on a so-called progeroid uh, mouse model. This is basically mice that have low amounts of this protein BOPAR1, and they age about five times faster than a normal mouse. So now the phenotypes in this accelerated aging model that the aging-related disorders are sarcopenia, which is basically muscle wasting, also the loss of fat, both fat deposits in the body and subcutaneous fat, and the subcutaneous fat loss typically gives us the wrinkled skin. Yeah, the third uh, hallmark of aging was the formation of cataracts, which is seen in about 25% of people above 65. So we looked at these three aspects because we knew that in those aging processes, the gene P16 was expressed, uh, indicating that in those age-related processes, perhaps P16-positive senescent cells would play a role. We saw that lifelong clearance really can either prevent or delay those age-related disabilities. When we would treat late in life, when those disorders were already present, we could halt them or slow them down from that moment on. What are the hopes applications of this then? Yeah, so a lot of work needs to be done, but this mouse model can be used to really try to figure out what would be the best strategy of removing these cells. Would that be continuous or would that be once every year or once every so often? Would it be uh, advantageous to do it at a late life? We agree that, you know, lifelong treatments are not really desirable, but could also uh, imagine that this is kind of more like a spring cleaning that you do uh, every so often. Jan van Dersen speaking to Mira Senthalingam. And you can read more about that work in the journal Nature this week. And here's Mira again with a roundup of our other science news. Being a smoker may increase your chances of also becoming addicted to cocaine. Working with mice and also data from human subjects, University of Columbia scientist Amir Levine and his colleagues found that nicotine alters the activity of a gene called FOSB, which has previously been linked to addiction these changes increase the likelihood of developing a subsequent cocaine dependency. We saw an increase in the different behavioral paradigms that are related to addiction. Finally, we looked at a certain gene that's called the FOSB gene that has been shown to be very important for addictions. And we saw that when we give nicotine first and then cocaine, there is an enhancement in the expression of the FOSB gene. And that the final step is that we've discovered that nicotine basically opens up chromatin, and that's how it primes the brain to the effect of cocaine. High levels of pollution are increasing the intensity of cyclones over Asia. 
carbon-rich brown clouds over the Arabian Sea, which have grown sixfold since the 1930s, are cooling the water surface, resulting in a drop in wind shear, the difference in wind speed and direction, between the upper and lower parts of the atmosphere. This increases the efficiency with which storm systems can form, making supercyclones, with winds exceeding 185 kilometres per hour, much more likely to form. Amato Evan from the University of Virginia led the study. What we're really showing is that human activity can actually change these massive atmospheric phenomenon. But what it also says is that because these aerosols reside in the lower parts of the atmosphere, if emissions stopped, this effect would essentially reverse on um, a time scale of just a couple months. The relevance of this findings is that although we have in this way changed the climate and, and in such a way that creates very powerful storms, it's not irreversible. Skin can see the light to protect us from UV radiation. Elena Wancha and colleagues from Brown University found that a light-sensitive chemical called rhodopsin, normally found in the retina, is also present in melanocytes, the skin cells that produce the suntan pigment melanin. The cells use the rhodopsin to detect UVA rays and then switch on melanin production in under an hour. Previously, melanin production was thought only to occur after a few days in response to shorter wavelength UVB radiation, which can damage DNA. So if a small amount of initial UVA exposure increases the skin's defense to UVB, it's really important not to have, for example, UVA-only sunscreen. The other thing is that if this is a protective response and we identify the molecules that mediate this response that leads to melanin production, then we can activate the pathway artificially and increase the skin protection. Three new chemical elements have been officially named by the General Assembly of the International Union of Pure and Applied Physics, IUPAP. Elements 110, 111 and 112 in the periodic table have been named Darmstadtium, Frontgenium and Copernicium, respectively. They were named by physicists from around the world and are now officially part of the periodic table. The secret of a lion's roar lies in the shape of its vocal cord, according to new research. A lion can generate sounds as loud as 114 decibels, equaling that of a jet engine taking off. Scientists had believed that the loud, low-pitched roar was down to the weight and presence of fat within the animal's vocal cords. But now, analysing samples of lion and tiger vocal tissues, Sarah Klemek's team at the University of Utah identified the key features to be stretchiness, pliability and the square shape of the vocal folds themselves. Little lung pressure is really needed to set these vocal folds into vibration. The panthera vocal fold is a very square shape. The mechanical properties along with that square shape allow the lion to generate a very loud roar at a very low pitch. The researchers equated the sound to that of a baby's cry. Both sounds demand attention, but lions use it as a scare tactic to keep intruders at bay, rather than a call for help. And that was Mira Senthilingham with this week's News Flash. And as always, you can follow up on any of the news stories we've covered, along with many more, by going to thenakedscientist.com slash news. And me and my team from Cancer Research UK will be covering all the big stories from the NCRI conference this week on our blog. That's scienceblog.cancerresearchuk.org. Distilling the best science. 
The Naked Scientists. And this is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and with Kat Arney. Now, as we said, I'm at the NCRI, the National Cancer Research Conference in Liverpool this week, and I'm joined by Professor Chris Marshall from the Institute of Cancer Research in London. Good afternoon. Hi. Hello. Now, congratulations are in order to Professor Marshall because he's just been awarded the Cancer Research UK Lifetime Achievement Award and did a fantastic lecture this afternoon um, covering 30 years of your research. That's right. Yeah, so that was uh, absolutely fantastic. But let's look a little, uh, go back into history and talk about what you've been doing because basically you're, you're studying cell signalling. So let's, let's go back to where did you get into this and what's it all about? We're now at a stage in our understanding of cancer where we won't be treating a specific cancer such as bowel cancer just because it's bowel cancer, but it'll be bowel cancer associated with particular genetic changes. And what one person's bowel cancer may have as genetic changes could be different from another's. And what we know now from 30 years or more of research is that many of those genetic changes affect what we call cell signaling. And cell signaling controls when a cell is going to grow, multiply, whether it's going to die or survive, or whether it's going to move. And these are the three principles of what goes wrong in cancer. Cells grow where they shouldn't do they multiply when they shouldn't, and they survive when they should die. And so what's, what are actually these signals that are going on in cells? We think about signals maybe like semaphore or Morse code or a, a mobile phone signal now. How do cells signal? Well, of course, it's, it's, it's molecules which are signalling, and what happens is cells respond, as we all do, to signals to do something. Um, for a cell to proliferate to multiply it'll be a growth factor signal which will drive the cell into into cell division but for that signal to act on the cell it has to be relayed into the cell's nucleus and it does that by a sort of molecular relay almost like a relay race where one molecule passes a piece of information to another and eventually the message ends up in the nucleus. So you've got these molecules that are passing this thing on you can see quite easily how that might go wrong in cancer. What sort of things do go wrong to the signalling? Well, frequently what happens is that you get mutations in some of these relay components which turn them on all the time. They can't be turned off. So So you've always got this thing going, keep going, keep going, let's keep dividing. You've always got an accelerator and you haven't got a brake. Other types of genetic change, you just remove the brake. So it's like having a car that's parked on a hill, it's got no brake, so it goes to the bottom. And also you, uh, you presented in your talk today some really nice data about cell movement as well and how cell, faulty cell signalling might make cells go off on the move, which is obviously very important when cancer spreads. Yes, this is one of the most difficult things to understand in cancer. What is, are the mechanisms which make cells move from their, their normal place in the body and disseminate somewhere else? And it's that process metastasis which is actually the, the major clinical problem in cancer. And now by having the methods to molecularly dissect the movement of tumour cells, we're beginning to identify targets for potential drug therapy to stop tumour cells moving. Now, presumably, this kind of signalling process, the the cell signalling that makes cells grow and makes cells move and makes cells die, is normally needed for normal health, you know, when we need to make new cells if we damage ourselves. So... 
how how can we target the processes that are faulty in cancer without switching off the signalling that we need to make new cells when we really need to? Well, th this is a very interesting question. And it turns out that many of the genes which are altered in cancer, their primary role is actually in embryonic development. So we don't actually, we're not so dependent on those genes and the proteins they encode for their signalling in adult life. So this is when you're developing as a, as a baby in the womb and yeah. then they get switched off when yeah. you're an adult and you don't need yes. them. So then you should be able to develop drugs that target them when they've got switched back on in cancer. That's true. And the, uh, the other thing which happens is that um, some of these proteins, because the genetic mutations make them so active, is that you, can, you have a threshold, a window of opportunity where you can inhibit the cancer form but you're not inhibiting so much the normal form. So if that's when the one that's involved in cancer is particularly strange or, or has a different shape or something yes, like that. Yes, particularly. It's mutated. It's particularly active. So how, how have we got, where have we got to with developing these kind of drugs and testing them? Uh, are things available in the clinic now or are things just coming through in the pipeline? It's a bit of both. On, on the pathway which I've spent most of my time working, which is we call the RAS, RAF, MEC, ERK pathway. <laughs> Say that. <laughs> that is RAS, RAF, MEC, ERK. RAS, RAF, MEC, ERK. Lots of uh, abbreviations I sometimes here. think of having tattooed on my arm. But, um, <laughs> the, the, two, the two best targets for drug therapy in that pathway are RAF and MEC. And there's over 20 drugs now in early stage clinical trials that hit RAF and MEC. And one of them, a drug against the BRAF, protein, which is altered in about half of melanomas. That is now licensed for treatment of cancer patients. That's this drug, Vemorafenib. That is Vemorafenib. <laughs> uh, almost as hard to say as Rasrafmec. Um, so we're starting to see these drugs actually getting through trials and to the clinic. Will, will they, because they're only going to work for a certain proportion of cancer patients, how, how can we tell who they'll work for? We'll, we'll have to determine what sort of genetic mutations the patients have in their tumours before we treat them. And this now is going to be quite easy technology. It's not going to be difficult to do this at all. So you need to have a, you can imagine a situation where you take a sample of a patient's tumour, you might test it and see what's gone wrong in it and then give them a drug or a combination of drugs. Is that how it might work? Exactly how it might work. This is what we call personalised or stratified medicine. You get the drug depending on what your mutations are in the tumour. I, I think these treatments based on these sort of ideas are, are going to come on stream very quickly over the next five to ten years. Well, that's a, an exciting vision of the future. That's uh, Professor Chris Marshall from the Institute of Cancer Research in London. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Kat Army. And still to come, we'll be looking at some of the latest developments in understanding imaging and treating cancer. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page, that's thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. But first, how stable is the West Antarctic ice sheet? It's one of the biggest questions in climate science. After all, if the ice itself melted, then global sea levels could rise by between three and five metres, and that would be a catastrophe. To work out how stable the ice sheet has been in the past, scientists at the University of Exeter have been using a process known as cosmogenic isotope dating. This technique involves studying isotopes, those are different forms of the same element, and Richard Hollingham met up with glacial 
geologist Chris Frogwell to see what he's found. So this is a cosmogenic isotope extraction laboratory, and this is one of the first in England. It's basically a clean air laboratory, so dust-free conditions. We use this airlock or antechamber. So let's go inside through the sliding door. And you've got a, a sticky doormat here. This is to take dust off our shoes. Yeah, it's basically dust is our, our big enemy in these places because it's absolutely loaded with beryllium, which is one of the isotopes which we're trying to measure. So we, we try and avoid getting dirt and dust in here at all. And as you might expect, the lab itself is sparse. White surfaces, fume cupboards and a blast of air from the vents above us, designed to keep the room free of contamination. Here, Chris's team is studying rock samples found on or near the ice sheet. You can kind of visualise the West Antarctic ice sheet as being a giant glacier. It's, a, it's an ice sheet, so that it drowns the topography, but it still quarries rocks from the base of the ice sheet and brings them to the surface at certain points. Now, we can pick up those rocks from both up on mountainsides, so where the former ice sheet used to be when it was far bigger, and on the modern ice sheet as well which are coming up through the ice now we can test these and look at the long-term configuration of the surface of the ice sheet and how it's changed can we have a look at these these rocks then so let's wander over to the the bench here this one's quite beautiful it's some sort of granite is it it's basically full of quartz and different felspar minerals we're principally interested in the quartz because this contains the isotope that we're analyzing here which is beryllium 10 and aluminium-26, and they're produced within the lattice structure of the quartz. So essentially, we, we collect these rocks from, from different important geomorphological locations across the, the mountain range and extract the quartz from them. Now, once we've got the quartz and we've cleaned the quartz, we can extract the minute amounts of isotope from within the quartz. And what's this isotope? This is this beryllium isotope. Yes, yeah, so we have beryllium-10 and aluminium-26. Now, these isotopes are only produced by the interaction with cosmic rays which come through the atmosphere. Now, they produce the, the isotope year on year at a reasonably well-known rate, which allows us to essentially use it as a clock, or the build-up of it as an exposure clock since the ice sheet changed its, its shape or structure. So when they're exposed, they're absorbing cosmic rays. When they're buried by the ice, they're not. Yeah, this is the theory that we base this technique on. Now, it's giving us a very good idea for where the upper surface of the ice sheet has been and when it was there. So it can allow us to reconstruct the three-dimensional shape of the ice sheet. So you've got this this bit of rock. It's about the size of a, a house brick. What can that rock tell you then? Well, it can tell us a few things. Basically, we, we can get an idea of ice flow direction because we know where the rocks outcrop from, so we know where the, the, the rock's been transported from, which is one very useful thing. It can give us the, the structure of the ice sheet back through time. But more importantly, let's say by analysing the concentration of cosmogenic isotopes in it, it can give us the idea of the time since it's been exposed. And what have you found we found an interesting pattern which shows that the, the current configuration of the West Antarctic ice sheet in this sector of Antarctica has remained the same for hundreds of thousands of years. Now, this evidence is, is based upon the, the, the presence of features called moraines on the sides of the mountains. Now, above these moraines, you get long, long exposure ages, long cosmogenic exposure ages, which suggest that there's been no real glaciation of the mountains 
of the upper parts of the mountains for a long period of time. Now, if the West Antarctic ice sheet was to melt, then the likelihood is you would have small mountain glaciers growing as the ice sheet regrew essentially around its base we don't see any evidence of that and we use this and the long-term preservation of these moraines on the slopes of these mountains as evidence for stability of the west antarctic ice sheet in this sector chris fogwell at the university of exeter he was talking to planet earth podcast presenter richard hollingham and we should say that chris's work does not definitively prove anything about the stability of the west antarctic ice sheet as far as that's concerned the jury is definitely still out and you can find more planet earth online resources on our website at the naked slash planet earth But now, the science surrounding cancer is multifaceted. It involves clinicians, chemists, geneticists and even physicists. The essential work of developing new treatments and clinical approaches is backed up by developments in imaging technology that allow us to detect and observe tumours with ever-increasing fidelity. Professor Martin Leach is co-director of the Cancer Research UK and EPSRC Cancer Imaging Centre at the Institute of Cancer Research and he joins us now. Martin, thank you very much for joining us. I was wondering, first of all, what sorts of roles does imaging play in cancer and what sorts of imaging do you actually do? Well, imaging sort of ranges all the way through the cancer pathway. Um, A very important aspect is whether we can detect disease early because the earlier we can detect it, the better we can treat it. Um, Then we have to see what the status of the disease is, um, how extensive it is, and whether it's spreading through the body, because that dictates different types of treatment. And then we need to guide new treatments uh, using imaging, and imaging is very important in a a whole range of um, guidance methods. Um, We do a lot of magnetic resonance imaging. That's one of the important techniques that's come on in the last 20 years or so. Um, But we also do CT and X-ray imaging and isotope imaging, Um, And all of these have different roles to play and are often complementary in understanding the disease and how it's behaving. So what are the sorts of challenges you're facing in imaging at the moment? What are the goals that you'd really like to reach? Well, we'd really like to be able to now not just see where disease is, and that's the historical, if you look at x-rays, you see these spots on the um, screens or broken bones, you can see where the, disease, where, where the problem is, but you don't know much about it. What we really want to know is how the tissue is behaving, and then if we treat it, whether that treatment is doing what it's supposed to do. So those are the new challenges. So that's almost a bit like comparing an MRI of the brain to an fMRI. The fMRI tells you where the activity is, the MRI just tells you what shape it is, and then you're looking to take those steps in cancer. That's right, yeah. How can you do that? Well, one of the techniques we've been working on recently um, allows us to look at the diffusion of water molecules in tissues. Um, And this is quite a neat technique, particularly from a physics point of view. Um, But with MRI, we can actually measure how far water molecules have moved or diffused in tissues over a period of time. So if you've got a rapidly growing tumour, all of the cells are clustered very closely together and they effectively squeeze all the water out. If you then successfully kill a lot of those cells, you then get spaces in between the cells and a lot more water, and therefore the water molecules can move much further. And we can measure that now, and this gives us a way of picking up tumours, detecting them, but also it helps us to see how far they've spread throughout the body. So we're, we're working now on top of that to try and develop computer methods 
to measure how much disease there is in the body and then when we've got new treatments that are hoping to reverse this spread of disease we should be able to detect whether that's working or not. So you essentially take a baseline for a patient and then you know how the water travels. Either, I guess, you could compare healthy tissue with unhealthy tissue or you just know how it started out and then months down the line you can see how it responds. That's right, yeah. We, usually we do baseline scans and then do follow-up scans so we can look in the same tumour. You've mentioned the very interesting physics about this, but clearly computer scientists also have a very large role to play in how we actually understand and interpret that information. Yeah, I I mean, a large part of our work is developing analysis methods to analyse and present the data in a simple way. Um, So this is giving us new tools, in fact, to look at some of the heterogeneity in tumours. So that's the fact that some of the tumour cells are driven by one pathway and then perhaps some of the cells have adapted to be driven by a different pathway and we can begin to try and pick up those differences with a range of imaging techniques. So this is really looking at the chemistry, not just looking at the structure, but actually seeing what chemical reactions are taking place. I guess that also will help you to lead and advise clinicians on what treatments might be appropriate. Well, that's what we're aiming for. We, in, in this era of personalised medicine that was discussed earlier, we want to be able to monitor individual treatments, identify what may the most appropriate treatment and particularly identify if that treatment isn't working any longer and we need to switch. Um, So that's an important area and chemical techniques are are central to that. So we've had positron emission tomography for quite a long time and that allows us to probe some important pathways in the cells but the problem with that is that we can't tell how the molecule we're looking at and it's a probe molecule has changed and cells of course are all about interacting with molecules and making them do different things. So we're now working on a new technique called dynamic nuclear polarization and this essentially is going to make MRI much more sensitive um, and allow us to look at very small levels of molecules. So with MRI we normally look at water um, and we see only about seven molecules in every million. So if you thought about the UK population of 60 million, we would be seeing about 400 people. Um, With DMP, we can take that up to about 10 million people. Um, So that gives us the possibility of looking at molecules that are only present at relatively small amounts. And one of those that we're looking at is pyruvate, um, and that's a very important intermediate in the energy um, supply to the cell and is very much influenced by cancer. So we are already finding, looking at some of the new treatments that have been developed at the Institute of Cancer Research, that um, we can see changes in that metabolism um, at a very early stage um, in the application of the new treatment. And we hope that's then going to inform how we can look at those patients in early stage trials to test whether these new treatments are really working. How do you go about taking an idea from the incredible physics that we have and then you at the ICR making sure that that these things work and that we know that we can see it? How how does it then actually get into being used in medicine? Because surely all of the radiologists or whoever's role it is in the hospitals need to understand the new techniques in order to interpret them. Yeah. Well, we go through a range of tests first before we try and take these techniques through to the clinic. But then what we try and do is bolt them on to early stage studies or to routine studies that a patient's 
are having where we can just add this on. it depends on the type of measurement we're doing but we've introduced a number of these approaches successfully into early stage trials of new treatments and that gives us feedback on whether they're actually useful imaging techniques and if they are we then try and move to generalize those to other centers and that helps more clinicians understand how useful they are and gives us more evidence. Um, so we go through a series of trials and then clinicians will learn about them from conferences and the papers that are published. Well, thank you very much. That's Professor Martin Leach from the CRUK and EPSRC Cancer Imaging Centre. And Martin will be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions for him or for us, then get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can join us at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at the Naked Scientists.com. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Kat Arney, who's joining us this week from the NCRI conference in Liverpool. Still to come, Diana O'Carroll will ask if wearing sunglasses helps to keep your eyes healthy in our question of the week. But first, I'm joined by Madhusudan Srinivasan. He's Clinical Associate Professor in Medical Oncology at the University of Nottingham. And he'll be presenting a paper at the NCRI conference this week about a new target for cancer drugs. And that's blocking the DNA repair mechanism. Good evening. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Kate. So let's start by going a bit back to basics. Why, why do cells need to repair damage to their DNA? How do they get damaged and why do they repair? Well, that's a very important question, Kat. If you look at a normal cell, we all know DNA is the building block of life. Sequence in the DNA makes genes. Genes make proteins. But the problem is, in normal cells, the cells are constantly producing damaging agents. These are called oxygen-free radicals. These free radicals can actually damage the DNA. If they damage the DNA, the genes can get corrupted, and that can make abnormal proteins. In order to avoid this situation, what normal cells do is they're constantly scanning the DNA. We call this a scanning the genome to maintain stability of the DNA. And DNA repair pathways are critical for maintaining this genomic stability. So there's, there's damage to DNA created by just the processes going on in cells, but presumably also from other things like cigarette smoke or ultraviolet light from the sun, things that we know damage DNA and cause cancer. Absolutely right. So what I spoke to you about was endogenous DNA damaging agents, and you have exogenous DNA damaging agents. And the most important ones are environmental agents. Smoking is a, is a, is a main culprit. There are environmental toxins such as lead, industrial toxins, now, these hydrocarbons, as we call them, can actually directly damage DNA. And when the damaged DNA happens, the bases get corrupted, and that leads to what's called as mutations. And it is the mutations that drive the cancerous phenotype. So we've got this DNA repair going on, but when we get damaged, then we can get cancer. But also, um, what are, what's gone wrong with the DNA repair in cancer cells? Because DNA, DNA repair is also a bit messed up in some types of cancer, isn't it? That's right. In fact, the relationship between DNA repair and cancer is quite complex. On the one hand, suboptimal DNA repair can actually increase the risk of cancer. It can lead to a cancerous phenotype. On the other hand, certain tumors actually upregulate DNA repair. And when they upregulate DNA repair, what they do is it gives them a selective survival advantage 
and it also makes them resistant to certain treatments that we use in the clinic. So things like radiotherapy that damage DNA in cancer cells and make them die, they would become resistant to that kind of treatment? That's correct. It's radiation therapy and uh, also several chemotherapeutic agents that we use in the clinic. So some of the drugs that, that you would treat them, they actually become resistant because they're repairing the damage that's, that's being aimed Absolutely at them to right. kill them. So talk a little bit about your research. So you're studying a particular repair pathway in, in cancer cells and in, in healthy cells as well. Tell me a bit about that and, and what's going on with that. Okay. So mammalian cells, that's human cancer cells, have several DNA repair pathways. We know there are at least six different DNA repair pathways in man. One of the DNA repair in that is called base excision repair. And this particular pathway is, is absolutely essential for maintaining the correct basis in your DNA. The, so ones the, the letters, the, the specific letters. letters of the instructions. Absolutely. So they are absolutely essential to maintain the letter, keep the script going. Okay. So that's the base excision repair. Now this base excision repair was discovered about 20 to 30 years ago. And over the last decade or so, we know a lot about base excision repair, what are the proteins involved in base excision repair, how the process is coordinated. One of the proteins that my lab is focused on is a protein called human AP endonuclease. It's also called APE1. This particular protein is, is very essential for base excision repair. And work in our laboratory, which has been going on for the past five to six years, is trying to understand what this protein does in normal cells, what this protein does in cancer cells, and how can we exploit for cancer treatment in patients. So here at the conference, you're presenting some really exciting data where you've been trying to block this particular protein that's involved in this DNA repair. And, and what do you see when you, when you block this? Okay. So what we have been trying to do in the laboratory is first understand what's happening to this particular protein in tumours. And what we see is APE1 is frequently overexpressed in tumours. So it's working too hard. Okay. And also the tumour cells are overexpressing it so that they can try and circumvent other damages and continue to survive and lead to re uh, resistance to treatments. So that's one thing that we've understood from studies in human tumours. Then what we have gone on to do is, now that we know that this protein is very essential for cancer cells, we've actually established a drug discovery program to try and block this particular protein. So we isolated what's called a small molecule inhibitors of APE1. These are little tiny drugs. Just little tiny drugs, compounds to be precise, that block the functioning of APE1. The next stage in our research has been to try and exploit novel treatment strategies to try and define which group of patients would actually benefit from APE1 inhibitors. And, and that's what we are presenting tomorrow, and I'm really excited about that because this uh, new field in cancer called stratified medicine uh, and personalized cancer medicine where we can actually look at tumor biology and then try to tell our patients in the clinic that this is the treatment that you're going to have. Kat, what are the problems that I face in the clinic when I see a patient is, before I start the treatment, there is no way in which I could know whether chemotherapy is going to work or radiotherapy is going to work or not. For the first time in the last three years, we actually have tools where we can actually predict who might be able to respond to treatment and who may not be able to respond to treatment. This is in, in its very early phase and over the next five to ten years we're going to see a huge explosion in this personalized cancer treatment. And the research that we are presenting tomorrow is exactly in personalized cancer treatment approaches where looking at tumor biology 
we can actually target our APE1 inhibitors for treatment. So what particular types of patients or types of cancers might these drugs be suitable for? So when you look at personalized cancer treatment, uh, we believe that APE1 inhibitors are particularly going to be beneficial in breast cancer, in ovarian cancer, in pancreatic cancers. Now, the, a proportion of these tumors, up to 10 to 20% of these tumors, they are deficient in a particular gene called the BRCA genes. And what we know is if we can identify those tumors, studies in our laboratories have suggested that APE1 inhibitors are likely to be particularly sensitive to those tumors. So you could do a, a test for a person with that type of cancer and say, okay, you have a fault in this BRCA gene and then you might benefit from this type of therapy. Uh, how close are we to actually being testing these drugs in clinical trials? That's a very, very important question. And as you know, drug discovery is a, is a long, drawn, <laughs> process. And, uh, you know, the stage we are in at the moment is, is what's called a hit-to-lead conversion. So it's very early still. It's, it's very early, but potentially very exciting. So I think what our long-term, medium-term to long-term strategy is usually get a pharmaceutical partner and try and drive this research program for patient benefit. So at the moment, this is just still in the lab. You're trying to find the best kind of thing to take forward to develop into a drug. We're still uh, uh, fine-tuning the structures of the compounds so that we can decide which one to take forward. So you're quite right. Well, that's really exciting stuff as well. So uh, thank you very much. That's Madhusudan Srinivasan from the University of Nottingham. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist, and we're joined this week by Martin Leach from the CRUK EPSRC Cancer Imaging Centre, and, of course, Kat Arney, who's coming to us from the NCRI conference. Martin, uh, we've had a question in here um, on Facebook, actually, asking about the different routes that you can take to get into cancer research. And this is from Nish Nayar, who's listening in New Delhi in India, actually. And, obviously, you have come in from a physics perspective. You are Professor of Physics as Applied to Medicine. So they're clearly are a lot of different ways that you can get into this huge field of cancer. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you need to follow your interests to start off with. Um, of course, there's a, there's a very big um, route in from biology into cancer um, because of the basis of cancer. But there are many other areas that are involved in developing new ways to deal with cancer, whether it's um, physics, chemistry, where we're developing new drugs, engineering in terms of equipment um, and a lot of computer scientists. There's a lot of epidemiology in cancer, of course. So there are a very wide number of routes, but usually um, you need to go through university training at some level, um, and then there are a lot of different possible routes from then on. Kat, with your CRUK hat on, you must deal with an awful lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. Absolutely, yes. I mean, Cancer Research UK funds statisticians and, uh, and epidemiologists. Those are people who do very large population studies to find out what causes cancer. Uh, we have people who are involved in designing clinical trials. We have chemists who are designing potential new drugs, all sorts of things. Physicists, people doing weird computing stuff, all kinds of people uh, are involved in the effort uh, to beat cancer and do different types of cancer research. So it's not just about biologists or doctors. There's a, a huge range of people. And also um, nurses as well, research nurses are really important for helping to run clinical trials. So there's a, there's a route there through nursing and through the medical profession. 
Cheers, Kat. Um, Joshua Spell, who's uh, listening in the USA, asks if you could explain what the different stages of cancer are and what makes some of them inoperable. Kat, could you just give us a, a whistle-stop tour of types of cancer and stages of cancer? Okay, so there, there are lots and lots of different types of cancer. Ca- people say the word cancer, and it's actually it's many, many different types of disease. And as we've heard today, um, they're all very different. It depends what genes have gone wrong in them. It depends what type of tissue in the body they started in and um, and doctors tend to, to stage cancer according to how far it's spread so normally a cancer will start when a cell starts multiplying out of control and it, it basically now we think about cancers not just as a little clump of cells that have gone wrong but really as a rogue organ so it's starting to grow a blood supply and it's starting to involve immune cells and cells from the tissue around it and then um, that's kind of very early stage cancer and if you can catch cancer at that kind of stage it's very easy to remove with an operation um, and that the person will get better again which is why it's so important to try and catch cancer early to, to go to the doctor if there's something wrong doesn't feel right because um, in many cases an early stage cancer can be successfully cured with surgery and then you start to look at uh, the later stages when it started to spread it spreads through the lymph nodes in the body or uh, starts to spread through the bloodstream and so that can be uh, really difficult to treat. And that's when we obviously get into really big problems. Thank you very much, Kat. And now we join Diana O'Carroll for our Question of the Week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week, are we overcompensating? Hello, I'm Philippa from Oxford. I heard that the pupil of an eye widens when it looks through dark-tinted glass. If this is the case, why do we wear sunglasses? Surely the eye gets more sunlight than it does without sunglasses, and this must be a bad thing. Just how much does the pupil's opening counteract the effect of sunglasses? Here's Dr Mike Cox from the University of Bradford, where he's Senior Lecturer in Clinical Vision Science. We need to think about the light reaching your retina. To get there, it has to travel both through the sunglass lens and through your eye's pupil. In a 20-year-old person, on a bright day, the pupil diameter will be around 3 millimetres. With a dark pair of sunglasses on, this will make the pupil dilate to a diameter of around 4.5 millimetres. That means roughly 2.5 times more of the light reaching the outside of your eye can reach the retina by travelling through your pupil. But don't forget, due to the sunglass lens, only around a tenth as much light is able to reach the outside of your eye and travel through the pupil in the first place. The total amount of light reaching the retina is reduced by a factor of around four. So sunglasses really do work, even though your pupil will dilate if you wear them. Think about eye safety with your sunglasses. Too much invisible ultraviolet light can harm the retina inside your eye. If a sunglass lens doesn't absorb ultraviolet light, but does absorb visible light, then with the sunglasses on, the pupil dilates and the ultraviolet light can still travel through the lens, reach the outside of your eye, and head through the pupil. As the pupil is bigger, more of this ultraviolet light reaches the retina inside your eye, and over a long time, this could harm your eye. Fortunately, if you buy sunglasses in Europe, They should have the letters C and E marked on them. If you see this CE mark, then the sunglasses will give you the proper protection against ultraviolet light. If you don't see the CE mark, don't buy or use the sunglasses. 
So the pupil will dilate to allow in more light, but not enough to counteract the effect of the sunglasses. Further, a good quality pair of sunglasses will filter out UV light, which is the really damaging stuff. And top marks to Giza and Diver John on the forum who said pretty much that. Next week, if you can't see, and you're not particularly good at knots, how do you stop yourself from getting in a twist? Hi, my name is Heather Demarest and I'm a graduate student in philosophy at Rutgers University in the U.S., My question is about the umbilical cord. I'm seven months pregnant, and my baby's always moving around, sometimes completely changing positions in my womb. My question is, how does the long umbilical cord keep from getting tangled and knotted? Other cords tangle so easily. If I put my iPod headphones in my book bag or tie my dog to a tree, I quickly have a tangled mess. But a baby typically goes for nine months without any trouble. I love the show. Thanks very much. Why is it that most babies don't tend to tie themselves in knots? Answers to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can write on the forum, which is at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Facebook us or you can Twitter at Naked Scientists. Diana Carroll with our question of the week. And if you know how the umbilical cord avoids becoming a tangled mess, and if there's any way to apply the same trick to my headphone cable, then do get in touch. But that's actually all we have time for this week. Thank you to Tom Simpkins, Mira Santalingam and Hannah Critchlow. And thanks to Christopher Marshall, Martin Leach and Madhusan Srinivasan for joining us on the show. Next week, we're actually putting the flu virus under the microscope and Chris Smith will be absolutely in his element. So if you've got any questions, tweet them to at Naked Scientists right on the wall at the... TheNakedScientist.com slash Facebook or email Chris at TheNakedScientist.com But finally, it was with very great sadness that earlier this week we heard about the tragic passing of a good friend of the Naked Scientists, Christina Scott. Christina was one of Africa's best science journalists, mentor to a generation of up-and-coming science writers across Africa. She was an author, an activist and an inspiration to all who met her. Her boundless energy and sense of humour were as infectious as they were delightful and within minutes of meeting her you knew that you'd have a friend for life. Christina was a friend and will be missed. Our thoughts are with her family. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. 